Please turn to Luke chapter 3, and in verses 23 to 38, we have Luke's um, genealogy, and in Matthew chapter 1, we have Matthew's genealogy, Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. And when our children were small, we would open our <clears throat> Christmas presents on Christmas Eve, And before we did that, we would always read the Christmas story, and we'd read sometimes from Luke and sometimes from Matthew. But in all the years, which go very quickly, but in all those years, we never once read the genealogies. And probably the same is true for you. If you did something similar, you probably chose not to read the genealogies. I don't, uh, I don't know of anybody who was converted uh, through reading the genealogies. Nor do I know of anybody who is adamant about not being a Christian because, you know, they found a discrepancy in the genealogies and questions about the names. It's just not a great problem for almost everyone I know or have heard of. And um, there are 41 names listed in Matthew, 41. And there are 77 names listed, as you will have noted, in Luke chapter 3. And frankly, at times it's a little tedious to read through it. And you wonder what the point of it is. It's not that interesting to you, probably. And we wonder whether there's any real benefit to these things. But then, of course, we read what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And he says, all scripture. So there's that word, all. All scripture is breathed out by God. And so this is down in print because the Spirit of God deemed that necessary. All scripture, including this, is breathed out by God and profitable. So everything in the Bible is useful. Everything in the Bible is for our benefit. Everything in the Bible can be used by God to help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, including these genealogical passages. And so given that, we're going to Think about the two passages together in a general way. We're not going to dive in mind-numbing detail into the two passages, but we're going to consider some key points, some salient points in these genealogies in Luke and in Matthew. So we're going to begin with Israel and genealogies. Israel and genealogies. And we, we begin by asking the question as to what the purpose of genealogies were in ancient Israel. So why did they have them? Why did they keep such meticulous track of genealogical records? Well, several reasons. First, they were important for the sale and purchase or redemption of land. So remember back, remember Ruth, and remember chapter 4 of the book of Ruth. And Naomi 
has either sold or is about to sell land. It's not quite clear, but there's land that is sold and the land needs to be bought back. And there is a man who was a closer relative than Boaz. We all want Boaz to buy the land, but there's a relative who is closer to Naomi than Boaz is. And so he has first rights to the purchase of that land. So how do you know he has first rights? Well, you go to the genealogical records. Now, they knew already uh, how close he was, but if there had been some doubt about that, they could check the, the records and find out who the closest relative is, and the closest relative then, he has first right of refusal when it comes to the purchase of the land. So that's one reason why genealogies were important. Secondly, they were important because that established where people might live. If you read a passage like Numbers 26, verses 52 to 56, then you'll find that certain families were given certain portions of land. Certain families were allotted certain areas, and this was their land, and they were allowed to live there. And so you needed genealogies to know what land was yours to live on, what land had been allotted to you and to your family. So it was important for that reason. And then thirdly, these genealogies were important to establish a royal succession. I mean, who's, who sits on the throne of Israel? First uh, Kings 11.36 God tells David, he promises David, that David will always have a lamp before God in, in Jerusalem. He would always have a lamp before the Lord. He would always have a king before the Lord. He will always have a descendant from his line to sit on his throne. Well, then the king needs to be a son of David, doesn't he? The king needs to be in that line. And how do you know if he's in that line? Well, the answer, of course, is, well, you go to the genealogies. And you know then that this one, this right of royal succession is a step.
Now, secondly, the Gospels and the genealogies. There are two genealogies, as I said. One in Matthew, Matthew 1, 1 to 17, and one in Luke, Luke chapter 3. And we just read it a little while ago in verse 23 to 38. Now, there are an awful lot of details in these genealogies. There are so many names. And... To be honest with you, scholars spill an enormous amount of ink talking about uh, some of these details, and we're not going to uh, take time for that kind of thing tonight. But I want to focus our attention on the purpose. Now, what's the purpose of this? Why does Matthew include a gene genealogical record in his, in his gospel? Why does Luke include one in his? Well, let's think about Matthew. Matthew writes predominantly to Jewish people. He really has Jewish people in mind. In the first century, he's thinking especially about Jewish people. Now, thank God, the Bible comes down to us, and Matthew comes down to us, and we read Matthew all the time. So it's not just for Jews. It's for us. It's for everybody. We thank God for that. But who does Matthew have especially in mind when he first writes it? Well, he's thinking about especially Jewish readers. And you can see, he's always quoting the Old Testament. And when you read through Matthew, you'll see sometimes your Bible might kind of set this out. There are so many Old Testament quotations, and you might read in your Bible and you say, oh, this is set off and italicized. Well, that's a quote from the Old Testament. You'll find again and again that Matthew does this because he wants to show them his Jewish readers, he wants to show them that this Jesus about whom I'm writing, he's the Messiah. And so he's writing to these people and he's trying to demonstrate who Jesus really is. And especially he's trying to show that Jesus is the son of David. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1, you'll see just how he begins this. You'll notice in Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David... The son of Abraham. And then he launches into his record here. Abraham, the son of Isaac, and so on and so on. And coming to a conclusion there in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so he establishes through the genealogy that Jesus, our Messiah, the one you crucified, the one who's the Savior of the world, he is the son of David. The record shows that. Now, repeatedly through the Gospel of Matthew, the phrase Son of David is used. Matthew 9, 27, Matthew 12, 23, Matthew 15, 22, Matthew 20, 30, and so on and so on and so on. Again and again, Son of David, Son of David, Son of David. And so if you're a Jewish man or woman or child or young person, you're looking for the Son of David. I mean... All your life, you've heard about the Messiah. Who's the Messiah? He's the son of David. He's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be like David. He's going to be the greater David. And so Matthew's saying, here's the son of David. Here's the son of David. He's the son of David. That's what he's trying to establish. And that's what he does establish. You see, the Messiah must be a descendant of David. You can read 2 Samuel 7. A promise is made to David. He's going to have a king. It's going to be a king who's one of his sons, and that king is going to have a kingdom that will last forever. Messiah is going to be the son of David. We read, I think it was last week, Isaiah 11, verse 1. 
Who's the Messiah? He's going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. He's going to be in that line. There's Jesse and there's David. And then at some point comes the Messiah, the son of David. Matthew says, that's him. That's Jesus. Or you can read Jeremiah 23, verse 5. God says, I will raise up from David. From David. That's why Matthew is so adamant. That's who Jesus is. He's the son of David. So that's Matthew's purpose. That's why he puts the genealogy there. That's why he keeps hammering away at this throughout his book. Son of David. So he wants to show Jesus is the son of David. Now what about Luke? Well, you notice that that climax there at the end because he wants to show that Jesus, oh, you're tracing through all these people. You're tracing through all this list of 77 names and then you come to the son of Seth and the son of Adam. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the son of Adam. He's the son of Adam. Luke has recorded enormous details here about the glory of Jesus, about the fact that the Spirit of God hovered over Mary and overshadowed Mary, and that which was conceived was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's the Son of God. But listen to this. He's the Son of Adam. You can trace him right back to Adam. You see, Luke is not especially concerned about Jews. Luke has a much broader readership in view. Luke is very interested in seeing the Gentiles come to the Lord Jesus Christ, as, of course, Matthew is too, but his focus is more defined. And so, as a result, Luke wants to show that that Jesus is, well, he's a real man. He's in that line. He's just like us. He's the son of man in that sense. The son of man also speaks of his deity when you think of of the book of Daniel. But uh, he's a son of man in the sense that he's, you know, Ezekiel calls himself, I'm a son of man. And Jesus is a son of man. He is a real man. He is one of us. And he is a descendant of Adam through Mary. So this is a wonderful truth, you see. It's wonderful because we know that that it's necessary that Jesus be God and man. It's necessary that he be divine so that he's able to save us. And it's necessary that he be man so that he be able to represent us. And so Luke and Matthew are careful to establish who Jesus is. So it's not here just to bore us. It's not, in fact, it's not here to bore us. It's here to to stir us to, to thanksgiving, these genealogies, to establish the identity of Christ, that we might rejoice in that. So the Gospels and the genealogies, but before we move on from that, there is, first of all, a safeguard to be noticed. Uh, These Gospel writers have their own particular intent and purpose in how they establish their gospel and how they organize it and what they include and what they exclude. They have an an individual purpose, but they're also both concerned to safeguard uh, the virgin conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For instance, look at Matthew 1 and verse 16. Matthew 1 and verse 16. And perhaps you notice when I mentioned that verse earlier. Matthew 1, 16, tracing through the genealogical record, and it talks about the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now, up until then, you have Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elihud. But then it changes once you get to verse 16, and it's Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And so he's just trying to draw a line and say, no, no, it's not the same as all the others. And he's the legal son of Joseph, but he's not the actual son of Joseph. And then perhaps you noticed, I'm sure you did, Luke 3.23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. When kings began their ministry, they were about 30 years of age. When priests began their ministries, they were about 30 years of age. When the prophet, priest, and king begins his ministry, he's about 30 years of age. And being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Everybody thought he was the son of Joseph, but you and I know he really wasn't because we know what we read earlier. And so both Matthew and Luke are very careful that uh, they want to emphasize and safeguard the Lord Jesus and make sure that though he is legally connected with Joseph, he's actually the son of God. And his conception came about in an extraordinary and indeed in a miraculous way. So that's one safeguard. And then there's one problem. There are a variety of issues. There are a variety of things about which people debate. And I'll give you a a taste of it by just noting one and suggesting two possible solutions. Uh, The problem is is this. In, In Matthew 1... And verses 15 and 16, it says this, Matthew 1 and verses 15 and 16. It talks about Elihud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So you Note that, and then you go to chapter 3 and verse 23 of Luke. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. So Matthew and Luke can't seem to agree as to who the father of Joseph is. One says Jacob, and the other says Heli. So what do we do with that? Well, there are several attempts, several. And for most of these little issues, there are several attempts. Um, I'll give you two. And uh, the first is this. Well, Jacob, the one referred to in Matthew, Jacob died childless, and so a nephew named Heli married the widow, and they had a son, and that was Joseph. So that's one solution. The second solution is that that Matthew is giving us the genealogy of Joseph, and Luke is giving us the genealogy of Mary. And he doesn't say Mary, because really you just don't talk about the genealogies of women, because you just don't do that. Uh, But uh, 
they suggest, no, this is actually, Luke is actually the genealogy of Jesus through Mary, which takes you then back to Adam. And some would even render verse 23 in this way, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the descendant of Heli. So they would say then that that's the purpose, that Jesus is legally a descendant of David through Joseph, but he is actually a descendant of David and Adam through Mary. And so the, they, they say, well, uh, Matthew is, is through Joseph and, and, and Luke is through, through Mary. Well, all right. Uh, the second solution is favored by a man like William Hendrickson. I have the utmost respect for William Hendrickson. Love his commentaries. But the first solution is favored by Don Carson. And almost all the Reformed people I know genuflect before Don Carson. And then there's also Leon Morris, who also favors the first solution. So to be honest with you, I'm not sure. And I'll leave it to others to to muddle through that. I'll just tell you the purpose is clear. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He is God of very God. He is every inch a man. He is one of us. And he is divine, so able to save us. And so these genealogies establish these things. So that's the second thing. And now thirdly and lastly, God and the genealogies. God and the genealogies. What do we learn about God from these genealogies? Well, first of all, we learn about the power and the faithfulness of God. We learn about the power and faithfulness of God. In Genesis 12, verses 1 and following, we read that God prophesied long ago that it would be through Abraham's seed that the Savior would bless the world. And Abraham lived. Now, we have to try and understand just how long ago Abraham lived. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here. Abraham lived 2,000 years B.C. So at that time, in Genesis 12, God says, the one whom I'm going to send is going to be a descendant of Abraham. It is through Abraham's seed that I'm going to bless the world. And so what God did 2,000 years ago, he promised 2,000 years before that. And what he's doing today, 2,000 years after Jesus came, blessing all the world, because we're all the world. We're part of the nations. And God is blessing all the world through the seed of Abraham, about whom he spoke 2,000 years before the seed came. That is extraordinary power and faithfulness. So God makes a promise 4,000 years ago. He fulfills that promise 2,000 years ago. And then in the intervening time, in the 2,000 years since Jesus came the first time, he's been fulfilling the other part of that promise through the seed of Abraham 
who came 2,000 years ago. He's been blessing all the world. And that's absolutely astounding, you see. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises that the one whom he sends, the one who arrived 2,000 years ago, he promises he's going to be of the line of David. He's going to be the son of David, and he's going to sit on the throne of David, and he's going to reign. Well, God promised that about 1,000 years B.C. David lived about 1,000 years before Christ, and 1,000 years after that, Jesus arrives, and lo and behold, he's the son of David. God promised and God fulfilled. That's amazing. And what's happened since then in the intervening 2,000 years? Well, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Jesus has been reigning and he will reign until all his enemies are under his feet. He steps up to to the front and he sits down on the throne and he is reigning now until all his enemies are under his feet. And then when all the kingdoms are his, he will deliver them up to God. And God's been fulfilling his promise ever since. Absolutely amazing. And so you read in in the Gospels, you read here in in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1 that the Father says, I'm going to give him the throne of his father David. And he does. So what does this tell us? Well, it, it speaks to us of the power and the faithfulness of God. You see, it's interesting when you read the Gospel accounts of the the first coming of Christ, especially the, uh, the infant narratives, the birth narratives, there is a tremendous humility that marks the first coming of Christ. And there seems to be such weakness. I mean, you see a little baby, and you see him in a manger, and you see him being carried. I mean, how is Jesus rescued from Herod? Well, his parents They carry him away. That seems to be such weakness. I had a friend years ago who uh, was a a Hindu, and I was at his place for dinner, and he he said to me, as we're sitting at dinner, he said, would you like to see my gods? Oh, well, that's interesting. And so I said, sure, I'd love to see your gods. And so he said, well, I'll show you. They're in the cupboard. So he he took me to the cupboard, and he opened the cupboard, and he brought out his icons. And he said, well, we brought... We brought them from India. So I thought to myself, well, that doesn't inspire confidence if your God needs you to carry you from India. You know, your God requires that you pick him up and bring him to Canada. Well, the Lord Jesus, they picked him up and they took him away so that he'd be safe. On the face of it, it doesn't inspire confidence, but even though it seems as if weakness pervades the scene, in actual fact, the whole situation, the whole advent of Christ is suffused with power and faithfulness because everything that is happening, this seed of Abraham, this son of David, it's all according... I mean, God's power saw to it that after 2,000 years, that was fulfilled. God's faithfulness demanded that after 2,000 years, God would fulfill his promise to the letter. And so the power and the faithfulness of God 
And so now you and I think about this. We read this. We say, oh my, that's extraordinary power and faithfulness. And we know that that then is brought to bear upon every promise that we read in the scriptures that pertain to us. And so when God says, I'll be with you, we can bank on that. When God says, I'll give you the strength you need, you can do all that you're required to do because I will give you a sufficient strength. I will work everything for your good. I will be with you. I'll be present with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So any promise that you find in the Word of God, you know that His power and His faithfulness is brought to bear upon it. He will fulfill His promise, and He'll do it by His power. So this is wonderful. That's the first thing we see here, is the, the power and the faithfulness of God. The second thing we see is the the grace and the mercy of God. The grace and the mercy of God. You read these genealogies. They're just full of sinful people. I mean, they're full of sinful people. You have Adam. What has Adam done? Well, he's plunged the entire race into sin. You live with that? My decision has plunged the human race into sin and condemnation and all the suffering that is involved in that. And and then you have Abraham, who seems to be a shining light. And yet Abraham, Abraham falls in that one area where he seems to shine the most. He, He falls in the area of faith. On two occasions, God rebukes him for his lack of faith. He doesn't trust God. He's afraid of people. And his fear of men seems to trump his fear of God. And his faith wavers. And then you think of David. Ah, now David's a man after God's own heart. Yeah, but David's, uh, well, he's a murderer. And before that, he was an adulterer. And then he covered it up. And then you read in the Gospel of Matthew about Jeconiah. And Jeconiah in Matthew 1.12, well, he was under a curse. And then you begin to read about the others. Uh, as was mentioned, I think, on Wednesday night at prayer meeting, there, there are four women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. And Matthew mentions Tamar. You can read about Tamar in Genesis 38. That is a disturbing chapter. And because the, she was the wife of Ur, and he was a wicked man, and God killed him. So then uh, she schemes in order to get pregnant by her father-in-law. It's a sordid story. John MacArthur writes, don't bother looking for her redeeming qualities. He says almost nothing more is said about Tamar in the Old Testament. Scripture records no happy ending of her life. She's really just a footnote in the early history of the Jewish nation, but she stands as a classic illustration of the frailty and utter sinfulness of humanity. She's in the genealogy. She's mentioned. Then there's Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite woman of ill repute. She's in the genealogy. And then there's Ruth. Now, Ruth is a noble, and she's a godly woman, but she's a Moabite. 
And the Moabites were a tribe descended from an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters, and the other being the Ammonites. And and we read in Deuteronomy 23, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And so from them came Ruth. and, And Ruth is in the genealogy, the ancestral record of Christ. And then you have Bathsheba. She's the fourth woman mentioned. Bathsheba, and she's a Hittite, also a, a non-Jew, and, and she's involved in a, an adulterous relationship with David, and David is the, the man responsible, really, isn't he? But, but she is involved in that. And so you have these, these sinful... I mean, you read this record, you read about these people. This is a rogues gallery. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn about the grace and mercy of God. We learn, for instance, that in his grace and mercy, God includes Gentiles. Now, this is, this is exciting. God includes Gentiles in his salvation. You have Rahab, and you have Ruth, and you have Bathsheba. And these are Gentiles in the genealogy of Christ. And Christ is going to be the one, remember, promised in Genesis 12. He's the one who's going to come, and he's the seed of Abraham, and through the seed of Abraham, God's going to bless all the nations of the world. So it's not just going to be focused on the Jews, but he's going to include all the nations. God is going to give the nations as an inheritance to the Son. That's what the Psalms promise. And so the Gentiles always were included in God's vision. He was never exclusively focused on Israel. It was always focusing on Israel with a view to bringing in the Gentiles. And in the prophets, always it's prophesied that eventually the the Gentiles are going to come streaming to Christ. We're part of that, you see. We've come. We're part of that great streaming of the nations to Jesus. And here in the genealogy, we have a hint. It's a hint. It's a reminder. It's not just Israel. Uh, The Gentiles too. We have a part in this. We have a place in the purposes of God. That's the grace and the mercy of God, you see. Not just Israel, but us. God's going to bless the nations. Thank God for that. We also see... God uses sinners, not just that God is going to include the Gentiles, but we see that God uses Gentiles, or rather he uses sinners. You have people like Rahab and Ruth and David. These are sinful people. But even through sinful people, God is able to fulfill his grand purposes in the world. And sometimes even unbelievers God uses. Remember Cyrus? God uses Cyrus to bring them back to the land. And then, of course, he uses his flawed saints. And, uh, so you look at this genealogical record. You see, oh, oh, they're the saints of God. They're the people of God. They're people God loves. Uh, but they're nothing to write home about. I mean, they're flawed and they're weak and they're feeble. They're prone to wander and prone to leave the God they love. And, well, they're just like us, aren't they? And we thank God that he can, nonetheless, by his grace and mercy, 
use them to bring about his purposes. He can, by his grace and mercy, use us. He can use you to bring about his purposes. And so God uses sinners. And we see the, the grace and mercy of God in that, in that he condescends. He condescends. And we talked about this last week when we talked about his baptism. We, we see Jesus standing there on the shores, on the, uh, on, on the, the shore of the Jordan, and, and he's standing amongst sinners. And one sinner goes to be baptized, and the next sinner goes to be baptized, and, and then the next one, and, and then Jesus. That's extraordinary. And so you read through the genealogies. It's the same kind of thing. And you see this sinner. And you see this sinner. And then, oh, this one's saved, but he's oh, still a sinner. And then this, oh, saved, but still a sinner. And then ultimately you come to Jesus. And he's, he's with them. And so God condescends to be one of us. And, and you think, you know, maybe you find, I don't know if you find your family embarrassing? You ever find your family embarrassing? You ever think, oh. <laughs> well, you'd think that Jesus would be embarrassed by us. You'd think he'd be embarrassed to show people his family record. This is, this is my genealogical record. Don't tell anyone. But he publishes it in a book. And then he sends the book all over the world. He says, these are my people, you know. This is the family from which I come. And then he talks about his own people, the people he's redeemed out of this fallen humanity. And the Bible says he's not ashamed to call them his brethren. That's the condescension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, he's gracious. You see the grace and the mercy. He's so gracious. These people, they can't save themselves. And if you read this record and you know something of who they are, this rogues gallery of humanity. You know, they, they can't help themselves, you see. And the rest of the Bible will, will elaborate on just how bad they are. They can't help themselves. But then you read in Matthew, and it says that there's this one, and then there's this one, and then there's this one, and then there's this one. And then you come to verse 16. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. And the Christ is the one God has anointed to save his people. God is gracious. Well, there you have it. And perhaps, you know, if you're going to read the Bible at Christmas, maybe you're not going to read the genealogies next year. I understand that. But, says MacArthur, don't overlook the message of grace. God in his mercy doing for sinners what they cannot do for themselves, mending broken lives and restoring shattered hopes. And that's why he came, to save his people from their sins. And the, the genealogical record is part of the presentation of the qualifications of this great Savior. Now, in, uh, in AD 70, the Romans come and they destroy Jerusalem. They raise it, they... They level it. They destroy the temple. They destroy the city. And some Christians say that they also destroy the genealogical records. And then the Jews step forward and say, oh, no, that's not true. They weren't even genealogical records there. And then they debate and they go back and forth and they argue and so on and so forth. And it gets a bit tiresome, to be honest with you. Because, really, the genealogical records don't matter anymore. 
they don't matter today. Because today, it doesn't matter what family you're part of. It doesn't matter your ethnic or familial connection. That doesn't matter. If you're not a Christian here, or if you're watching, you ought to know this. It doesn't matter. These things don't matter anymore. The only thing that matters now, today, is whether you're connected with Christ. It doesn't matter what family line you're part of. It doesn't matter what family you're connected to. It doesn't matter who your ancestors are. It only matters, are you connected to Jesus? Are you one of his? It doesn't matter if you're part of this prestigious family. It doesn't matter if you're, oh, maybe you're in India and, and you're part of the untouchables. That's, that's still a thing, a tragic, horrific thing in India. Maybe you're one of them. But before God, that doesn't matter at all either. It matters to people, to their shame. It doesn't matter to God. The only thing God is interested in is are you connected to Christ? People might despise you then, but if you're a Christian, if you have Christ, that's all that matters. And that's why you need to make sure, not worrying about familial connections or ethnic connections, but am I in Christ? Have I trusted Christ? Am I saved by Christ? Does his blood cover me? Does his righteousness clothe me? That's the question. Not these other things. You can go to, what is it, Ancestry.com. You can look that up. I don't care. Find out where you're from and where your roots are and then write a book and have a mini-series. It doesn't matter. The question is, Do I belong to Christ? That's what matters. And on the last day, that's all that matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who the Lord Jesus is. We thank you that he's our Savior. So many of us here. And we pray that today you'll bless your words so that here and around the world, more and more will come to him, realizing.